So we are uh, again in the Gospel of John. And last week, uh, so last week Jesus was arrested, was betrayed and arrested in the garden. And uh, just to get our minds on the timeline of what's happening here, looking at all the Bible together, all the Gospels together, when we left off last week, Jesus uh, had been handed over to, or he handed himself over to the officers and to the Roman cohort that had come out to arrest him. The Roman cohort took him. The Romans went back to the Antonia Fortress. The officers or the, the temple police continued on, and they are taking Jesus. Today we're going to see they're taking him to the house of Annas, who is uh, considered to be, by the Jewish people, the high priest. And here uh, is he is going to be interrogated. This is like a preliminary interrogation. Like if you see in police movies when they, they arrest the suspect before they take him to jail or they'll take him to, they take him to that dark room and they put the, the bright light on his face and start asking him misleading questions, interrogating him. Think of all the great interrogation scenes in the movies that we've seen. I tried to find one today as an analogy, but they were, they were all a little bit too raw to be part of a sermon. At least the good ones were. Imagine that scene. Dark room, single chair, bright light hostile, antagonizing interrogators. That's what's happening here. From this point, at the end of this, next week, or he's going in the other Gospels, from here, from Anna's house, he goes to Caiaphas, the high priest in the Sanhedrin for the official trial that'll start in the morning. But right now, this is the interrogation. And the, 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 the really cool part about John's Gospel, the way he, play, the way he presents this, is that there's Jesus' interrogation is not the only one that's happening. There are two interrogations happening simultaneously. Peter is being interrogated, Jesus is being interrogated, and John puts those two together to contrast for us the difference between us and Jesus. And that's the big point that I hope to bring out today. So we're going to be in uh, chapter 18, starting at verse 13. Can I ask you to please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's Word? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. But it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Well, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, 
one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of uh, the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once... The rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and how it teaches us so many things, Lord, but how it teaches us the difference between us and Jesus uh, and the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us, Lord. So I pray, Father, that as we do see ourselves in Peter today, as we go through your word, you would even more focus our hearts and minds to see who Jesus is and what he's done for us, Lord. Our constant prayer that we would more clearly see Jesus so that we would love him more and all the more faithful we would be. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus, Lord. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So maybe you've all, I'm sure you've all seen this, there seems to be like a mini cottage industry that's grown up around uh, the battle between David and Goliath in the broader evangelical church, and and the cottage industry is um, that the, the battle between David and Goliath is this model, this example for us about how we should go out and slay our giants, that David is the example for us about how we can go out in faith and, and devastate any obstacle that the world puts in front of us, that we can overcome any temptation, that we can overcome any sin, any trial in life. We can overcome if we could just be more like David and pick up our stones and, in the fate, and go out and be a hero for God. Um, there's a sense when that's, you know, there's a sense where there's some truth to that, right? We are called to be faithful, we're called to struggle. Uh, against our, our sin, we're called to, to, to fight the fight of holiness. There's some sense of that, that it's true, but the, the problem with this whole cottage industry, more or less, is that it misses the whole point of that story. The point of that story is that Jesus, or that, that David is representing Jesus, who is our champion, and that Jesus goes out to battle against the forces of evil, and then as the representative of Israel, he defeats Goliath and wins salvation for all of Israel. And so the purpose of that story, the, what that, you know, that whole cottage industry is missing, is the fact that that story, along with every other story in the Bible, isn't so much pointing to us, but pointing to Jesus as our champion, that Jesus is our defender, that Jesus is the one who is righteous for us. And, um, you know, the big problem, the big problem with putting all the focus on the sense that I am supposed to go out and be a hero for God every week and slay all these, these giants is, is, is the reality of it, right? I mean, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm ready to kill some giants, right? Once in a while. 
But sometimes I wake up in the morning and I don't feel much like a giant slayer at all. I'm having trouble just getting through the day. You know, and I, what I think, what I used to think in my early Christian walk was that, you know, things would continue to get better. It's like the American, uh, the American dream, like over, you know, planted or superimposed over the gospel story that someday I would, things would get better and better and things would get, I would get stronger and stronger and then someday I would get to the point in my sanctified life where I would wake up every morning a dragon slayer and nothing would ever defeat me again. Well, I can tell you, 12 years into it, which isn't a lot compared to some, but 12 years into it, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and so the problem with considering, you know, all these stories about, um, you know, be more, be, don't be like Peter, be like Jesus, the reality is that we're fallen creatures and that's not always the case. We need to look at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's the main point of those stories and that's the main point of this story too. So the big idea, the thesis that we're going to bring out, what John, what Jesus, what the Holy Spirit wants us to know more than anything is this, is that because even in our worst failures, we are covered by Jesus' victory, we can always rejoice in the gift of his salvation. Because even our worst failures are covered by Jesus' victory, we can always rejoice in the gift of his salvation. Let's look at that one part at a time. Part one, uh, because even our worst failures. I'm going to read verses 17 and 18, and I'm going to skip down to 25, 27, and get both scenes of Peter here, starting at verse 17. So the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servant's... Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Skip down to 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself and so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. This is the first first scene, and the third scene are the interrogation of Peter. Peter comes under the interrogation of, of, of of the people that are there at the house of Annas where Jesus has been taken. Now there's something to say, there really is something to say about the questions that Peter's asked and his denial. They're, they're presented, really John presents them as this escalating level of threat. Each question is more and more serious. For example, the first question is by the servant girl. Peter comes to the door. He can't get in, but the other disciple, there's another disciple who followed him or came with him from the Lord's Supper, from the scene of the arrest in the garden, followed Jesus with Peter and this guy, whoever this disciple was, was known. He was familiar to the, the priest. The high priest knew him, so he was able to get in. Uh, and he comes back out to get Peter in. So here's the scene. Servant girl, disciple, who this woman knows is a disciple of Jesus. She com- he comes out to get Peter in, and he says, hey, let my friend in. Let Peter in, in with me. And she looks at him, and she says, 
uh, she says, you're not, you also, in addition to this guy, are not one of his disciples, are you? The way she asks the question is she's expecting or she's hoping for a negative response. Uh, almost, she's almost saying, hey, you're not going to cause me any trouble too, are you? If I let you in, it's not going to come back on me getting in trouble from, from you, like causing a ruckus in here, are you? And so the threat level here is really uh, convenience. Peter just says no or denies Jesus, not because he's in any danger right here. He's standing with another disciple who's known. She's no threat to him. He just gets in because he's afraid maybe she won't let him in or he doesn't, just doesn't want to fess up to the fact. So the threat level is just convenience. Second denial is a little more serious. Peter goes into the courtyard. They built as a fire. All the, the officers and, and uh, the servants, the officers who were part of the arresting party are there warming themselves by this charcoal fire. Peter walks up to them. Second question, hey, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he says, no, again, no, I am not. This one's a little more serious. Here, threat level is public ridicule, maybe, um, maybe beating, who knows? This one is a little more serious. Third question uh, is the most serious one of all. It's Malchus, the guy who he cut his ear off, one of his relatives. This is an accusing question. He says, hey man, aren't you the guy that just tried to kill my cousin back in the garden? Hey man, didn't you just try to kill my homie? I know you. He recognizes him. This is serious. This is not just threat level convenience, threat level uh, severe personal harm. This is threat level potential arrest uh, execution. And here, of course, Peter again vehemently denies it. This is, the, this is the question in the other synoptic or the other gospels where he calls curses down upon himself saying, if I am lying and I, no, let me be killed, let these bad things happen to me. No, I do not know that man. You know, and so there's something to say in this about how we can say, and, and it's right to call out the fact that there's something about how denying Jesus in the small things leads to it being easier and easier to deny him in the really important things. And that's something we should, we should think about. It's something that the text calls out to us. If we are denying Jesus in everyday life because it's more convenient to do it or it just was going to cause inconvenience for us in our work and our lives and whatever it is, that's going to set us up to be more likely and willing to deny Jesus in the times when it really, really matters. And there's something to be said about that. There's also something to be said about the failures of Peter and how that goes about happening. I mean, the, the biggest reason that the text brings out is that Peter is over self-confident. He is trusting in himself. He's really basically, you know, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus warns him, you are going to deny me. And he's incredulous. He's like, no, I am not. Even if I have to go to death with you, I will not deny you. And Peter, in his self-confidence, in his own power, is intent on proving himself to Jesus. I got this. There's also the act where the, the gospel brings out how the, the, the apostles neglected to pray. Right before the arresting party comes up, Jesus says to his apostles, pray so that temptation doesn't overcome you. But they're lazy and they just don't pray. And so, there's something to be said about that. 
prayer is super important in our being close. There's also something to be said about the fact where, you know, John says that Peter is following Jesus at a distance. Maybe he's insinuating that if we follow Jesus from a distance, we're more likely to deny him in everyday life, in matters that count. I mean, how often do we... Uh, is, this was convicting to me. I was thinking about my own life. Where, where, do I, where am I denying Jesus in the little things in my life or in my interactions with other people, not speaking plain truth because I think I'm trying to be reasonable in my faith or I'm trying to be strategic or things like that? Where's that line? Where does strategic and reasonable cross the line into I'm really just following Jesus as a distance because I don't want my current group of friends to think I'm a weirdo or I don't want to be kicked out of this community or I don't want to, I'm afraid I'm going to suffer some sort of cultural sanction because of who I am in Christ. Now look, there's a lot to be said about those things, so I brought them out, right? That's things we really need to look at in the text. But here's where a lot of sermons would say, the point of this is, don't be like Peter, but instead, be a super courageous, victorious disciple instead. Go out there and get them. And they try to hype, hype us up so that we'll look at Peter and go, Peter, bad example, I'm going to be a super courageous, victorious disciple, and I'm going to go out and kill those giants. Don't be like Peter. Be, be like a victorious, be a, be a powerful, a, a brave disciple. But what's the, what's the problem with that? I mean, the problem with that is Peter was the best disciple. Seriously, out of all the guys who were super down for Jesus, Peter was number one. I mean, seriously, why is he even under fire? Because he's standing at a campfire with the guys who arrested Jesus right next to him. I mean, that takes some, that's brave. The only reason he's in trouble at all is because he followed Jesus and went right into the courtyard with him, standing in the midst of the officers that just arrested Jesus. Jesus, that's brave. That's bold. Uh, think of Peter at Pentecost. Coming out in the middle of Jerusalem and, and, and per, uh, preaching Jesus as the Messiah on Pentecost in the power of the Holy Spirit in front of the very people that murdered him. But then think of Peter just a little bit later in Antioch when Peter's afraid of his fellow Christians, fellow Christians come from Jerusalem and, they, and, Jesus, and Peter's eating with the Gentiles, which is a no-no in, in, in Judaism, and he gets afraid of his own people and stops eating with the Gentiles and pretends to be something that he's not. So, and we see, so we see Peter, he's the best. And yet his walk still is like this. Victory. Oh, failure. He's as good, he does bad. He has a good week, he's got a bad week. <sighs> this is a reality check. Yes, there's a sense in it when we should look at what Peter's done 
and, and, take, and take heart of that. But really what this is telling us is that this is us. <laughs> this is us. Peter, super, super apostle, vacillating disciple. This is us. This is definitely me. There have been, there have been times we had, there was a, one of our friends died. One of our friends from a, from a, a, a 12-step group passed away. There was a wake of this huge room of men that all hated Jesus, and I were in this room. I'm there, and I feel God just pressing on me. Go to the podium and share the gospel, and I was terrified. I was like, no way, not going to do it. But eventually, I got up, was, raised my hand, was the last guy called. I shared the gospel to this room full of men, terrified, out of my, out of my terrified, terrified. But I did it. Pentecost. <laughs> and then, inexplicably, the next week, two weeks later, I'm in line at the grocery store, just feeling the same thing. Start a conversation with this person about a spiritual thing. And I totally punk out. Totally punked out. <sighs> Anybody ever done that? Listen. This is to teach us that we relate to Peter, that Peter, the great apostle, is also the vacillating disciple. And if, you get, if we get real honest with ourselves, this is the road of sanctification for everybody. Highlights, lowlights, highlights, lowlights, and it's, that's just how it is. We don't need to be heroes for God. What we really need, what we really need is someone to win the victory for us. And that brings us to point two. Point two is covered in Jesus' victory. I'm going to read 19 through 24. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Then when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Anasin sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is, this is backroom political power brokering, power brokering at its finest. Annas is the high priest in the minds of the Jewish people because he is the legitimate high priest who was deposed by the Roman government. In Deuteronomy, the high priest is chosen by the people and he serves a lifetime. He's always the high priest until he dies and a new high priest, Right? Well, in Rome, they took over the office and would depose high priests and appoint high priests according to political power, how they wanted to rule the place. And so Annas was the high priest who was deposed by the Romans, but he had five sons that went on to become high priests throughout their lifetimes, including his his son-in-law. So Annas is like the king power broker of Washington, D.C. politics, behind closed doors, making things happen. 
And he is questioning Jesus. Basically, he wants to know two things. Who our disciples are, how many, how many are there. He's thinking political insurrection. And his real concern is, what are you teaching? They're, con- they're convinced that Jesus is a false prophet because he doesn't agree with them. Uh, and that means, pol- uh, that means that there's a religious insurrection brewing And so this brings out the fact that what's happening here is that the the, the Jewish leadership are acting out this predetermined plan. They already know Jesus is guilty. They already know what he's guilty of. They don't have any witnesses. They don't have any proof. They don't have anything to go on. But they have already decided that he's an insurrectionist. Their concern is their religious system, but what they're going to do is try to sell it to the Romans as a political insurrection. And Jesus answers them. He says three things. First, he says, I have openly taught, I've taught openly to the world in the synagogue and in the temple. In other words, he's reminding them. He's like, hey, we've been having this debate for three years. You have questioned my teaching openly in public. You have never, ever refuted a thing I've said, nor found it to be blasphemous, nor found it or were able to find it wrong. My teaching stands. Second thing he says, he says, why do you ask me? Jewish law did not allow for the direct questioning of the accused. Uh, They had to have testimony from eyewitnesses. They had to have charges in hand from those testimonies before they were even able to bring someone to an interrogation. There was all, there was, I don't want to go into all of them, but there were five, six, seven violations of Jewish law that are happening here and throughout the course of the night. And so when Jesus says, why do you ask me? Why do you ask me? He's saying, This is illegal. You're breaking the law. And then third, he says, ask those who heard me. This is Jesus demanding a fair trial. Get your witnesses, bring it, and let's get this over with because you know and I know that this is nothing but a kangaroo court and this is, you are not acting in righteousness. This is a pre-organized plan for murder. So let's get it on. And that's when, the, that's when the officer comes over and smacks Jesus in the mouth and says, you don't talk to the high priest like that because Jesus has just, while remaining calm and remaining compassionate in his divine control, he has called out unrighteousness, he has called out their sin, and he has, uh, he has, uh, and, and he has done it without defending himself personally. He is voluntarily submitting to this. What does that say to us? We see in that, first, this picture of divine control in meekness. Meekness is uh, the responsible use of power for the benefit of other people. How easy would it have been for Jesus just to confuse their minds like he used to do in the Old Testament to where they just were so confused they didn't even know what was going on let him go? How easy would it have been for him to wither that man's hand in mid-strike as he came across to smack him? Jesus speaks controlled righteousness in the face of evil, but he does not forcibly stop it because this is the purpose. This is his plan. Everything is happening exactly according to schedule. And note also 
that this, there, the, the Jewish political system itself was very generous, was very gracious. One of the things that they're violating on is, is, is a general principle of Jewish law to do everything possible to find the innocence of, a vic, of, of someone who was accused, to be, to be gracious uh, and essentially their version of assuming innocence before guilt. Very, very gracious legal system. The problem wasn't this legal system. The problem was the people. The problem was the men that were, in, that were, that were enact, acting through it. It's a picture for us uh, that even the best legal systems, our very best efforts at justice are still stained by human failure because it's a macrocosm of a bunch of Peters getting together. Individually, we fall short. When we get together, we fall short. No matter what we do from our strength, we fall short. And in, and in that, that background, like a black velvet background that jewelers use to show jewels, Jesus is put on that like a diamond, shining in his contrast to all of that. What we need is someone to win the victory for us. What we need is someone who is truly righteous. And against the backdrop of our weakness, we see Jesus in his strength. Against the backdrop of our lies, we see Jesus in his perfect truth. Against the backdrop of our wickedness, we see in stark relief Jesus in his righteousness, in his compassion. In our selfishness, we see Jesus in his willing sacrifice for us. And because of this, we can always rejoice in the gift of his salvation. Point three. So point one, because even our worst failures, point two, are covered by Jesus' victory. Point three, we can always rejoice in the gift of his salvation. I'm going to read the first two verses last. Verses 13 and 14. First they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now here's the turn in most sermons when I'm supposed to tell you, don't be like Peter, be more like Jesus. Don't fail like Peter. Be strong and courageous like, and righteous like Jesus. Those sermons would bring that contrast out. Um, and again, there's a sense where that's true. The Holy Spirit is building us up in righteousness to the, to the maturity of Christ. That's the purpose of being sanctified as we await to be glorified. But um, man if we are thinking that we are supposed to be more like Jesus, less like Peter, that is essentially encouraging us to be self-sufficient. And that is the opposite of what this passage is trying to tell us. It's not trying to say, be more like Jesus. It's trying to say, be totally dependent on Jesus. 
be totally dependent on Jesus in everything because really that's our only option. It's our only other option. Peter learned in this super hard, super necessary lesson that without Christ, he could really do nothing. He was the, he was the man. He was the most down disciple. He was the guy, he was, an, he was the man. And yet, you know, Peter went off to, on his own to do something great and, and in his own power he failed. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel it says, it says right at that last denial, the rooster crows and there, him, he and Jesus are in the, in the same place, in the same house. It says that Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Peter catches Jesus' eye right when he realizes that, oh yeah, Jesus said I was going to do this. Jesus catches his eye and it says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Man. You feel that? <laughs> Can you think of something in your life where you thought you were going to go out and win and do something great and it fell apart and you went out and wept bitterly? Man, I got more stories like that than I can count that I would even try to relate. But Peter, here, here's the thing. Peter went out to do something great for God in his own power and failed miserably and went out and wept bitterly. Peter hit bottom, as we like to say. In the, in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter, the man, the best disciple, totally hits bottom. And it was the best thing that ever happened to him. How is that? Why is that? Well, for those of you who have hit bottom in this way, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it proved to Peter, it proves to us that we are absolutely dependent on Jesus in life. That we must, we need to constantly be emptying ourselves and staying close to Jesus so that he can empower us in this life. And who knows what he's going to do with us. Maybe, for, you know, maybe the great thing you're going to do for God is raise godly children. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Maybe we're going to plant a church that's going to grow into a beautiful thing of, uh, for the name of God and last for generations. Maybe we're, some of us will be martyred someday. Who knows? We're absolutely dependent on the power of God in our life every single moment of the day from, the, from, 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 from speaking to somebody in, in, the, in the checkout line to facing potential executioners. But the big lesson that Peter learned, big lesson that Peter learned, the big lesson for us out of this, it, it comes out in what, Jesus, in what Peter was saying when he was, being, when he was denying Denying Jesus. Remember, all throughout this whole, the whole gospel, Jesus has been witnessing to himself by saying, I am, I am, the good shepherd, I am. 
the way, the truth, and the life. Last week, we saw Jesus invoke the great, the, the memorial name of God for himself, and he dropped a whole cohort of Roman soldiers. What does Peter say? <laughs> when he's denying Jesus, he says, I am not. <laughs> Man, that's a good lesson to learn. And sometimes Jesus, or God absolutely must let us go and hit bottom before we're able to say, I am not God. Only God is God. Only Jesus is Jesus. Only Jesus is able and capable of defeating sin and death and winning the victory for us. And the reality is that he has. That he absolutely has. And so the big takeaway from this from all of us is that we can always rejoice in the salvation that Jesus has won for us. We can always rejoice in it. That's not how we act. We rejoice in it when we're doing good. You're having a good faithful week, we're rejoicing in it, but when we're not, a lot of times, oh, I'm not, re- are we really, are we rejoicing in it? No, we're thinking that God is not pleased with us. We're thinking that we have somehow lost God's favor, or that somehow that is diminished But the reality is it never is diminished. It is never diminished. Peter learned that lesson. How do I know? In the first Peter, the letter that he wrote, he writes this, after years and years of contemplating all that happened, he says, he says in his letter that he calls all of us to know that we have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. You know, and that's not rhetoric. He wasn't searching for this flowery word to put in association with the blood of Jesus. That is coming from experience. He's remembering who he was in the courtyard, what he was capable of. And then he's remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. And he's saying, that blood is precious to me because of what it means. Because of the life, the eternal life, that what it means for me. And he can always rejoice in that. We can always rejoice in that. Even if we are simultaneously sorrowful about other things, the one thing that we have is the precious blood of Jesus, which guarantees our eternal life life. Listen, big problem, biggest problem you have is death. And that problem has been solved. Everything else is relative to that, man. I get it. There are sorrowful things that happen in life and things that we cry about together with. And there are many. But we do that knowing that it's not always going to be this way. And at the end of the day, at the end of this life, we have something more precious than gold. We have the precious blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, the preciousness of your word, and the even more precious nature of your blood that you have shed for us. Lord, when we're tempted to think that we're going to pull our bootstraps up and grab our swords and go out there and conquer dragons and giants, we pray that you would help us to remember our fallen nature and who we are, Lord, 
And in doing so, in that very act, we are depending upon you. And Lord, I pray that in our, we would be so dependent upon you, that we would be so empty, we'd be so concerned with emptying ourselves of our own selfish motives and plans, uh, leaving the outcome up to you, Lord, that we would be so dependent upon you, that we would walk and step with you, that we would do your will, even as the angels do in heaven as you call us to pray, Lord. And so we pray that. We pray that we would do your will, that we would know your will, that we would do your will, even as the angels do in heaven, and that through that, your kingdom would come in our hearts, in our church, and as we proclaim your name out into the world, Lord. We thank you that our biggest problem is conquered that everything else is relative and that we can always rejoice in that even in the midst of our earthly sorrows. Your word is glorious and you are beautiful and we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.